what a blessing it is when I remember to turn on my microphone. And what a blessing it is uh, when uh, we get to experience the blessing of our young people leading us in worship. What a blessing. We are committed to leadership development here, and so it brings a special joy to my heart when I see our young adults uh, using their gifts and talents to worship the Lord and to lead others in that. Well, this morning we're continuing our study of the topic of wisdom, particularly wisdom necessary to endure trials without losing your joy. This week, as I'm sure many of you have been, I've been following all of the developments happening in Ukraine. As if you don't know, uh, my wife and family and I lived there for uh, almost 15 years, uh, living in Odessa, which is uh, one of the cities certainly on the, um, on the target list uh, for the Russian military if they choose to invade. Back in 2014, uh, when the first Russian-Ukrainian conflict happened, we were there and a very dear friend of mine um, was the one that I traveled, a Ukrainian pastor was one I traveled with to the war zones to try to help some of the churches there. And uh, this week his wife uh, was texting Katie and and told her uh, that her husband had filled up the gas tank. And uh, now that may be something you do uh, you know, a couple times a week, uh, but over there uh, to to fill the gas tank all the way to the top is pretty rare. Um, it's just difficult for family budgets to put that much in the tank all at once. And uh, so, knowing him, uh, that was significant. And and so, uh, we are praying for peace, um, but we're also praying uh, that the new generation there uh, will be faithful uh, to the Lord as their forefathers were during the Soviet communist era. Uh, if the Lord should uh, choose to allow them to endure uh, the trials that seem like they may be coming. But because uh, that's been so close on my heart and mind, as there are uh, my children's friends, for example, uh, are are in the crosshairs. Um, there's six Russian amphibious landing ships that are moved in the Black Sea. Uh, the beach that they'll probably land on is visible from the apartment we lived in. So this has been on my heart and mind, and it's uh, very uh, much a blessing to me, and hopefully it will be to you as well, uh, to read what James has to say about enduring trials and to learn from those lessons. Last week we began studying James 1, 5 through 8, which teaches us the key to obtaining a very specific type of wisdom, which is the wisdom to endure trials without losing your joy. So today we're going to pick up where we left off at the end of verse 5. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 6 through 8, and then in our last five minutes or so, we'll conclude the passage by looking briefly at verses 9 through 11. So let's read the passage uh, in its entirely from verse 2 through verse 11. We'll read the passage, we'll review what we learned in verses 2 through 5, and then we'll continue on in our study. So this is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Now, two weeks ago, we studied verses 2 through 4, and we learned that to be joyful in the midst of earthly trials, we need a heavenly perspective, we need a heavenly perseverance, and we need a heavenly purpose. 
And then last week we noted that the topic of enduring trials begins in verses 2 through 4, but is continued on into verses 5 through 8. And as we'll see today, that same theme continues on also into verses 9 through 11. Now, last week we talked about the reality that we struggle to consider it all joy. We're commanded to consider it all joy in verses 2 through 4, but we struggle to do that. We struggle to keep a heavenly perspective. We struggle with perseverance. We struggle to see the heavenly purpose of our trials. So in verse 5, James acknowledges the reality that we often lack the spiritual wisdom required to consider it all joy when we face trials. And he then exhorts us to be in regular prayer because of this lack. We are to ask God to give us the wisdom we need to respond to our trials in a godly way. We are to pray for wisdom, specifically to pray for wisdom in the midst of our trials. And James defines wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God in chapter 3, verse 17, as that which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and that which produces the fruit of righteousness by sowing peace and making peace. We are to pray for that when we're in trials, to pray for wisdom, and wisdom as it is defined in chapter 3, verse 17. Can I encourage you, whatever trial you're facing, to pray that list of qualities to in in chapter 3, verse 17, in regard to your trial. So let's say some of you are in a difficult marital situation and you're enduring a trial in your marriage. Well, you need to pray according to James 3, 17 for wisdom which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, You need to pray that you will produce the fruit of righteousness, sowing peace and making peace. Whatever trial it is that you're facing, that's the wisdom you need to pray for. The wisdom you need to respond to your trials in a way which is pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, producing the fruit of righteousness and peace. James tells us to pray for that kind of wisdom. And then he pray, he tells us that we can pray with confidence because God is, as he is called in verse 5, the giving God. Remember, we talked about the unique grammatical construction there in verse 5. God is the giving one. He says, pray to the giving one who is God. And he will give generously without finding fault. So he tells us to pray. But he also tells us that to have the divine wisdom we need in order to view our trials from a heavenly perspective, to endure them with a heavenly perseverance, and to be refined by them according to God's heavenly purpose, we must pray. And then he uses three imperatives, three verbs of command in verses 5 through 8 to tell us that we must pray in humility, we must pray in faith, and we must pray in sincerity. Now, we covered the first imperative from verse 5 last week, which is to pray in humility. The verb there in verse 5 is ask. If anyone lacks wisdom, he must ask God. And that's the command is to ask. And we saw that instead of saying to people directly, you lack wisdom, James very tactfully and gently urges his readers to consider for themselves the likelihood that they lack wisdom. Instead of confronting them, he is encouraging them to humble themselves. He uses, as we talked about last time, that first class conditional statement, which says, if you lack wisdom and it's likely that you do, then ask God for it. He's asking them to humble themselves, to recognize their own need to do some self-reflection, to realize that when they encounter trials, they don't respond with purity and peaceableness and reasonableness and, and mercy and good fruits and righteousness. Instead, our hearts produce a lot of other things, less noble things in response to trial. So James is saying with that first imperative, 
if you lack wisdom, and I know you do, you need to ask God. Humble yourself and ask God for help. Ask him to give you the wisdom you need. Well, that brings us now to today's portion of the study, which is the second imperative, the second command, which appears in verse 6, and it is a repetition of the verb to ask. He says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And in verse 6 it says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This second command gives a second quality of effective prayer. We must pray not only in humility, verse 5, but we must pray in faith. We must pray in faith. Here, James gives a caveat to the promise. In verse, at the end of verse 5, it says, Ask God for wisdom who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But now he is going to give a caveat. He says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. We must ask for this wisdom in faith that God will give it. You must believe and not doubt. Now when we talk about asking in faith, the sad reality is that many people's perception of what this means has been distorted by false teaching. A specific kind of false teaching which appeared 1,900 years after Christ. For the first 1,900 years of the church, this teaching was unheard of, invented in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's what we call the name it and claim it view of prayer. This is not what James is referring to when he says that we are to pray in faith without any doubting. And because this has so influenced people's thinking, I need to first address this so that you understand what praying in faith is not. The name it and claim it version of prayer views God not as the giving one who gives generously to all without finding fault, but rather as a reluctant vending machine. To get something out of this reluctant vending machine, you have to put in enough money and put the money in the right slot, which is typically and supposedly the ministry of some super rich televangelist. You have to put enough money in a certain slot and then you have to press the buttons of prayer with enough faith and in the right way and if you do that, you'll get what you want. If you don't get what you want, the problem's with you. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't give enough money or you didn't give it to the right televangelists. Sadly, many people have been taught by false teachers to view prayer like the pagans of old viewed their incantations. The pagans of old said that if you say certain words in a certain way, they, your words, have a mystical power to produce miraculous results. And the false teachers who peddle this stuff would never describe it this way, but what they are really doing is teaching people to practice white magic. They are teaching people to use the same methodology as dark magic, but to try to use it for good purposes. Well, what is the methodology of dark magic? It is the belief that there is power in mantras and incantations. Mantras and incantations, by this occultic belief, actualize and energize a person's words and give their words creative force. And these false teachers say that Christians can do this if you say the right words in the right way with giving the right money to the right people, then your words can be actualized and energized and you can name it and then claim it. This is entirely unbiblical. The name it and claim it view is that praying in faith means praying with absolute confidence that whatever I want is whatever God wants. That is not true. The biblical view in contrast, 
is that praying in faith means praying with absolute confidence that whatever God wants is what I should want. Do you see the difference? Both are praying in confidence. But one is praying in confidence that whatever I want, God has to want. The other is praying with confidence that whatever God wants should be what I want. The name it and claim it view prays the Lord's Prayer upside down. The name and claim it view teaches people to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done in heaven as it is on earth. See, my kingdom come. I want health, wealth, and prosperity. Give that to me, Lord, my kingdom come. My will be done. I'm gonna name it and I'm gonna claim it. I want my will to be done in heaven as it is on earth. And that's why, for example, there's all of these efforts to beckon the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is not indwelling the believer, but rather is this reluctant, impersonal force that has to be somehow enticed to come. The biblical view, though, is to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's to pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. Father, I am submitting, Jesus said, my will to yours. Not my will, but yours be done. The name it and claim it teaching views God, as I said, as a reluctant, maybe even a little bit rusty vending machine. It must be paid, pressured, and manipulated in order to achieve results. That's not the God we're told to pray to. James just reminded us in verse 5 that God is the giving one. The giving is deep in his nature, and he gives generously to all without finding fault. Oh, you don't have enough faith. Oh, you didn't sow enough seed of faith of money or whatever. No, no. God is the giving one who gives generously to all without finding fault. So we've talked a little bit about what it doesn't mean to pray in faith. What does it mean to pray in faith? In the context of James, praying in faith means trusting that God really is the giving one. That he really does give generously to all without finding fault. That he's gracious in his giving and generous in his giving. It means believing that God will give you not what you want, but rather what he wants for you. And in context, what does God want for you? It is the wisdom you need to respond to trials in a godly way. It's the wisdom to want what God wants and to live the way God tells you to live. See, what you're being told to ask for is wisdom which is pure. Lord, give me the wisdom I need to be pure. Lord, give me the wisdom I need to be peaceable. Lord, give me the wisdom I need to be full of mercy and good fruits. Help me to not waver. Help me to not have hypocrisy. Help me to produce the fruit of righteousness. That's what I'm asking for, Lord, and you are the giving one. I believe that you will give this to me. Because your spirit indwells me, he is the sanctifier. I'm asking for sanctification in the midst of my trials and I believe that you will give it to me according to your word. Asking in faith is believing that God will keep his promise to give you the divine wisdom you need to react to trials with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's trusting that the Holy Spirit will do his sanctifying work in you. As Hebert puts it, quote, when we approach God with our petitions, we must believe not only in his ability to grant our requests, but also in his ability to answer in harmony with his character and purpose. Believing prayer takes its stand upon the character of God. See, that's what praying in faith means. It means praying in trust in God's heart and in his word. James says, you must ask in faith without any doubting. Now, this word doubting here is an interesting one. The root of the word means to have a dispute or a debate or a division. 
And the verb there is in the middle voice, so it's reflexive. It's to have a debate with yourself, a dispute with yourself, to be internally divided between two opinions. You must ask in faith without being internally divided or disputing with yourself or having an internal debate or without having two opinions. Someone who is doubting is someone who, on the one hand, asks God to give him the wisdom he needs to understand the eternal purposes which are being accomplished through his trials, but on the other hand, doubts that any eternal purposes are being accomplished at all. This is what doubting means, like, Lord, give me the wisdom to see the heavenly purpose in my trials. And inside your heart is saying, I don't think there are any heavenly purposes in my trials. Lord, give me the answer that I don't think exists. Lord, give me wisdom, but I don't think you're wise enough to answer this. On the one hand, the doubter asks God, Lord, please give me the wisdom I need to consider it all joy. Please give me a heavenly perspective, heavenly perseverance, and a heavenly purpose. But on the other hand, he doubts that God really can give him joy in the midst of his trials. He doubts that the heavenly perspective is even true. He doubts that God can help him persevere, and he doubts that God has a good purpose for the trials that he allows. He's doubting. There's an unresolved inner debate which causes him to vacillate between two opinions. He asks for the wisdom he needs to endure his trials in a godly way. He reaches out his hand to God and says, God, give me wisdom. And then he yanks his hand away and says, I don't think you can. God, give me wisdom. I don't think you have it to give. Give me a heavenly perspective. I don't think there is one. Help me understand the heavenly purpose in my trials. I don't think there is one. Help me to persevere. I don't think your power is enough. He's doubting. Steer describes it this way, quote, a doubting petitioner offers not to God a steady hand or heart so that he cannot deposit in it his gift. James is saying, look, when you ask God, hold out a steady hand to receive it. If you believe God has wisdom, ask him for it and then hold out a steady hand of faith to receive it. Rope says that the doubter is, quote, a man whose allegiance wavers. Musner says he is, quote, one who lives in an inner conflict between trust in God and distrust of God. This is the person who's in trial and saying, God's not fair. He's not just. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. There's no purpose in this. This is all meaningless. God, please help me. You've got to resolve that inner conflict that inner debate. Faith has to win the inner debate. Blanchard says that it is characteristic of the unbeliever to see God with a clenched fist. So that's why I talked about the name and claim it because God is not sitting there with a clenched fist where money and incantations have to pry his hand open. No, no. He just wants you to come with the simple faith of a child. Father, help me. Give me wisdom. At the end of verse 6, James describes the doubter as being, quote, like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Just blown and tossed. The doubter comes to church, and the preacher breathes a lot of hot air. And that influences him. You know, while he's listening to the sermon, his heart's kind of drifting towards that whole trust in God thing. He goes home. The cold winds of the world hit him, and he's blown the other way. Back towards doubt. Blown towards faith. Blown towards doubt. Back and forth like a wave. When things go well, he responds well. When things go poorly, he responds poorly. When he reads one book, his doctrine is influenced in one direction. He reads a different book, his doctrine is influenced in a different direction. When he's with Christians, he drifts one way. When he's with non-Christians, he drifts the other. He's just back and forth, here and there, tossed wherever the wind is blowing at the time. He's like a boat with no anchor, so he can't keep from drifting. He's like a boat with no rudder, so he goes wherever the wind blows. He's like a boat with no engine. He's adrift, aimless, swept back and forth with the tides and the currents. As Hebert pointedly says, the water has no inner stability to stand against the outer forces. 
So also the doubter, lacking a firm inner will of his own, is deficient in his ability to attain any fixed goals. He is totally untrustworthy with regard to gaining any end that needs determined perseverance in a certain course. In other words, he's flaky. And, you know, I, I will have to say, I, I got to talk to the, the guys here. You know, the ladies that are, you know, working with young women and, you know, as different situations come to my attention, one of the, the biggest cries of the heart of young ladies is, where are the men who aren't flaky? Where are the young men who aren't a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind? Where is the captain with a steady hand? Where's the leaders of families that when the seas get rough, don't wimp out, but with a steady and firm hand, guide the ship of their family through the storm in a godly direction? Men, leaders of households, Young men who want to be leaders of households, don't be flaky. Don't be back and forth here and there, on again, off again. Don't be a person who drifts back and forth like a boat with no motor and no rudder. You need to know where you're going. You're following Christ. And you need to be, have, you, have your life engaged in going there. And you need to be the type of person that has the tenacity to keep following Christ and holding to your convictions even when the waves of trial hit your boat. It's what your children need. It's a little bit scary to be on a boat in the middle of a choppy sea. uh, One of our elders took me out on, took me and the boys out on his his boat once in Lake Michigan, and it was just really choppy. And I was so glad that he knew how to steer, and the motor was working, and we were fine. But if that boat drifted, no rudder, no motor, it'd be super scary. That's By the way, men, why some of your wives and children have so much anxiety? They don't sense that there's a steady hand at the wheel. They they don't see you believing and not doubting. They are experiencing the choppiness of a boat which is adrift, blown and tossed by the winds and the waves of trial. They don't see that firm resolve to follow Christ and remain true to convictions no matter what comes. That's where security and stability comes from for a family. So start the motor of faith. Point your rudder towards Christ and get moving. Especially if you're in rough seas of various trials. That's not the time to back off or quit. That's the time to throw the engine to full and push through the waves. Ask for wisdom, trust God to give it, and then get going. So to consider all joy even in the midst of trial, you need to pray. And thus far, James has taught us to pray in humility having recognized that you lack the wisdom that only God can give, and to pray in faith, trusting in the heart, the character, the promises, and the purposes of God because he is the giving one who gives generously to all without finding fault. He will give you that wisdom described so beautifully in chapter 3, verse 17. Well, there's a third command in verse 7, and it's the verb don't expect. There's a third command, don't expect. It occurs in verse seven. And this imperative teaches us that when we face trials, we must pray in sincerity. So not only pray in humility and in faith, but pray in sincerity. Look at verses seven through eight. For that man, the doubter, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The first imperative gave a positive promise, right? The imperative in verse 5 was a positive promise. Ask and it will be given to you. The second imperative introduced an important caveat. You must ask in faith. Now the third imperative brings a sober warning. If you don't ask in sincerity, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Not just wisdom, but anything. In John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Pilgrim's Progress is a great book because he just describes character issues with names. 
I sometimes wonder whether some of these names were describing people John Bunyan knew. You wouldn't want to be the guy that he named Mr. Facing Both Ways after. But it is a great description of how some people are. At times, boy, it really looks like they're facing towards following Christ. It's like you turn around and all of a sudden it's like, no, they're facing the other way. They're this way and this way and this way. They're, they're Mr. Facing Both Ways. I think that phrase, Mr. Facing Both Ways, is an excellent description of the double-minded man and pray that it will never be a description of you. Pray that you will never be like the Laodiceans of Revelation 3, neither hot nor cold, facing both ways. Pray that you'll never be like the syncretist that Elijah confronted in 1 Kings 18, who wavered between two opinions. Remember, Elijah comes up and confronts him and says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. Stop wavering between the two. Choose this day whom you will serve. Augustine, in his confessions, wrote about a time in which he was two-faced, double-minded, double-hearted. You see, he had been consumed with lust and living with a concubine, and he was, came under conviction about that. And he knew he needed to repent. But he records in his convictions that there was a season of his life in which his prayer to the Lord, if honestly stated, was, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. That, my friends, is a prayer that many Christian hearts pray a lot. I have this besetting sin in my life, Lord. I'd really love to be free from it tomorrow. After this one last indulgence. Lord, free me from my sin a little later on. Free me from the sin, but not right now. Next time, Lord, give me victory. This is being double-minded. Friends, you cannot fool the Lord. No one can pull the wool over his all-seeing eyes. The Lord knows when the pious words of our lips don't match the wicked intentions of our hearts. And so the double-minded man is warned and even commanded not to expect anything from the Lord. He's unstable, it says, in all his ways. Or as Varner translates it, a double-souled man is unstable in everything he pursues. See, if you, if you are unstable in the midst of trials, your boat is not seaworthy. If trials come and your boat drifts and takes on water, if you can't stay afloat in rough seas, your boat is not seaworthy for anything. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, unstable in everything he pursues. And so when he prays, he prays insincerely. He asks God to give him wisdom when he has really no intention of applying it. Lord, give me that wisdom that's pure. He doesn't really intend to be pure. Lord, give me that wisdom that is peaceable, but he doesn't really intend to forgive anyone or resolve any conflicts. Lord, give me that wisdom which is full of mercy, but yet he doesn't want to give mercy to anyone. Lord, give me the wisdom which is full of good fruits, but he doesn't want to serve or do anything good for anyone. He's double-minded. He's asking for something he has no intention of using. Divine wisdom. God doesn't play games. So if you want your prayers to be answered, they must be sincere. If you're going to ask for divine wisdom, you must sincerely intend to use it. Well, I want to put together what we've learned from verses 5 through 8. The premise of verses 5 through 8 is that God is the giving one. He is a giving God who generously gives to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So the premise is that God is a giving God. The promise is that he will give us the wisdom we need to be joyful in trials. But the precondition is that we pray in humility, in faith, and in sincerity. So we have the premise of God's character, the promise of God's answer, and the precondition that we pray with humility, faith, and sincerity. 
So to summarize verses five through eight, to have the God-given wisdom we need in order to view our trials from a heavenly perspective, in order to endure them with a heavenly perseverance and to be refined by them according to God's stated heavenly purpose, we must pray and we must pray in humility, in faith and in sincerity. And now that brings us to the last three verses in this opening passage, which is verses nine through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I want you to notice that verses 9 through 11 are introduced by the conjunction but, the same Greek conjunction day, which we talked about in verse 5. And just like the, that conjunction tied verses 5 through 8 to verses 2 through 4, the conjunction here in verse 9 ties verses 9 to 11 to the preceding passage, to verses 2 through 8. So the topic being discussed is still the same one, how to be joyful in the midst of trials. That's still the topic. Verses 9 through 11 are continuing that same conversation, how can we have joy in the midst of our trials? And now James is going to address a very specific kind of trial, financial troubles, financial troubles. Why of all the things he could choose to address, of, he says in Verse 2, consider it for joy when you face various trials. So there's all these different kinds of trials. Why now does he focus in on financial troubles? Well, if you remember from the introduction, it's because he is writing to people from his church in Jerusalem who, because of persecution, had to flee to foreign countries, and they left and lost everything. They're now in abject poverty. So he's now going to address a trial he knows all of them are facing on a daily basis, and that is extreme poverty. They lost everything. But as we'll see in verses 9 through 11, James is cognizant that there's others in these churches that will be reading the letter. Well, who are these others? Remember, we talked about at the beginning that there's, there's kind of different groups of Jewish Christians in these churches in these foreign countries. You had the refugees from Jerusalem who had fled the persecution, but where did they go? Well, they, they went to Christian communities scattered around the world, and who were in those Christian communities? Well, they were Jewish people who had come and heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. They were people who had been living in those countries for generations. Remember, all the way back to the exiles into Babylon, they had been dispersed amongst the nations. So some of these families had been living there for generations. They'd built a life there. They'd even grown successful and wealthy in these other countries. So you have churches with middle class or wealthy people who've been there for generations. And now there's the, this flood of refugees from Jerusalem who are in abject poverty. That is the context. So you have wealthy people in communities of faith that had been there for a long time, suddenly now joined by this rapid influx of the very, very poor. Well, what happens when there's a flood of refugees? So lo imagine if a flood of refugees, if we were in Ukraine or Western Ukraine, for example, and a flood of our brothers and sisters in Christ from eastern Ukraine were to come pouring into our community. How would we react? Well, it certainly puts a strain on the benevolence fund. I saw that firsthand. I mean, local churches in Ukraine back in 2014, they all had benevolence funds. Didn't go very far when the number of people coming was equal to the number of people who were there. And it's clear from the context of James that division was occurring in the churches over this. In chapter 2, 
He says, verse one, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, "Uh, stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? See, the rich guy can give. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Clearly a division had arisen between the people who felt humiliated because they needed help and the people who felt pride that they could meet those needs and then resentment that they needed to. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, James tells both groups that they're thinking about financial matters all wrong, upside down, inverted. You're thinking about it all wrong, both of you, is what James is saying. What is is James doing in verses 9 through 11? Well, he's reminding them of the teaching of Jesus Christ, that the first will be last and the last will be first. He's reminding them that while it is true that Jesus never said, cursed are the rich, He did say, blessed are the poor. And he's reminding them that Jesus taught that rich people are particularly tempted. They are tempted to trust in the illusion of security that having lots of money brings, rather than trusting God for their daily bread. See, the poor man knows that he needs his daily bread from God, because where is he going to get it? He has nothing So give us this day our daily bread, O Lord, the poor man prays. Meanwhile, the rich guy is saying, I'm a little concerned that funds might run out five or six years from now. Will I have enough for the 20-year retirement I'm planning? Which one is more tempted to trust in money rather than God? James is saying that those who had lost their homes and possessions because of their faith in Christ had a reason to glory. He says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. This is radical and astounding. Glory in your high position. Well, how could he say that? Well, again, he remembers the teaching of his brother, Matthew 19 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, these refugees are people who, who laid it all on the altar. They stayed firm to their faith in Christ. They lost everything for the, because of their faith in Christ. And because of that, they should glory in their exaltation because they are gaining eternal reward. Anyone who has left a house or a farm will receive a hundred times as much in the kingdom. So glory in your exaltation, he tells these poverty-stricken refugees. Then he warns the rich. He warns those who had not made those sacrifices not to be proud or to look down on those who had. In fact, the rich, James says, should feel humbled by the fact that they had laid so little at the feet of Christ. Who had laid down more at the feet of the Savior? The refugee who lost everything for his sake? Or the rich guy who's priding himself because he made a generous donation to the Benevolence Fund? In God's sight, who gave more? It goes back to what Jesus said when he was watching people giving money in the temple and the rich were putting in these huge sums of money and then this little widow woman put in a mite and he said, who gave more? She did, she gave all she had. The rich give out of their abundance. The poor give all they have. 2014, when there was that refugee crisis, I was grateful there were some wealthy people who gave very generously to help us help those people. 
But I remember one time, I think I've told this story before, we were carrying in a fairly significant sum of money to help the people who were freezing to death in the winter. But I also watched those people not give what they had, but all they had to help each other. Too many faces. Okay. So James is saying powerfully in verses 10 through 11 that the rich, by the way, I'm talking to all rich people here. If you've traveled around, you know it. As James says so powerfully in verses 10 through 11, the rich should be humbled by the reality that life is short. They and all their money will fade as quickly as the flowers of the field. Chapter four, he's gonna say, like a vapor. You're going about your lucrative business and you're just vapor that's gonna appear for a little while and vanish away. And so he's telling the rich to humble themselves because of the frailties of life. It's a subtle reminder to them that tomorrow they could be one of the refugees. The rich had nothing to boast about. They had laid a smaller sacrifice at the feet of Christ. The poor did have something to boast about. They had given it all for the sake of the gospel. So from the perspective of the heavenly wisdom that James just told them to ask for in verses five through eight, the financial difficulties of the refugees were no reason to feel ashamed and the financial prosperity of the others was no reason to feel superior. But rather, Listen to this, both of them were to glory. He actually tells them both to glory. The poor to glory because God had chosen to exalt them and the rich because God had chosen to humble them. But both are told to glory. And they're both told to glory in the financial circumstances which God had providentially placed them in. So the final result of this instruction from James is that both the rich and the poor together would glory in the sovereignty of God. As Lenski comments, quote, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, the two are now equals. Hebert adds, the rich brother has come to realize that at the cross he stands on a level plane with the poor brother. Both have been given a new status in Christ and it is their true ground for glorying. As the scripture teaches, there is no partiality with God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are not class distinctions in the kingdom. So think how radically the heavenly wisdom which we're being told to ask for is supposed to change the way that both rich people and poor people think about their financial circumstances. It should be a radical transformation of the worldview. For the rich... They have to radically reevaluate what they glory in. You know, glory in their success and how prosperous their business is and all of that. And no, no, no. Kodu puts it this way. It would seem here that to be made low, to be humiliated for the rich, is to find something of incomparably greater value than his wealth. Something that by its greatness makes him feel small so that disillusioned in his old ground of glorying, he attains a basis for a better glory. He's telling the rich, don't glory in your riches, glory in being a child of God, just like these refugees who proved it with their life. That's what you glory in. Glory in your humiliation. Glory in bowing the knee before the cross. And when you humble yourself, you'll be exalted in due time. But for the poor refugees James was writing to, he's explained to them why they should consider it all joy, even that they're enduring the trial of extreme poverty. I love what Hebert says. He says that James is telling the poor Christian refugees that, quote, as a son of the king, he is an heir to the future kingdom and glory. He need not be disheartened by his present poverty or regard it as an evil. He is the possessor of spiritual riches that more than counterbalance his material poverty. MacArthur writes, 
even the most destitute Christian can glory in his high position as a child of God and in the countless blessings that position brings to him. He may be considered the scum of the world or the dregs of all things in the eyes of the unbelievers, but in God's eyes, he is exalted. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has, but he has been eternally received by God himself. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. The believer who is deprived in this life can accept that temporary and insignificant deprivation because he has a future divine inheritance that is both eternal and secure, kept in heaven for him. I think R.W. Dale, though, puts it in the most beautiful of ways. He says, instead of resenting his poverty and being discontented with his obscurity, let the poor Christian remember that he is a prince. That's a great summary. So, beloved, I don't know whether your finances are plentiful or scarce right now. I would aver to you that your finances are much more plentiful than the majority of people in the world, regardless of where you are compared to the American benchmarks. But whatever your financial situation is, don't forget who you are and what awaits you. You are a prince. You are a princess. You are a child of the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You have the greatest kind of wealth, a great inheritance reserved for you in heaven, one which cannot be stolen or lost, is not subject to the changes in the stock market or to invasions or wars or inflation or anything else. You have an inheritance reserved for you in heaven which will not perish, spoil, or fade away. You are a prince. So, when you're in financial hardship, learn to, well, teach your heart, maybe is the right way to put it. Teach your heart to say the same things that Hattie Buell said in a beautiful poem when she said, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing all glory to God, I am a child of the king. That's how you handle financial difficulties. Lord, whatever trials may be faced in this room, we pray that you would give us the divine wisdom we need to consider it all joy. Knowing that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. So Lord, may we let perseverance finish its work so that we may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We thank you that you are the giving one, the one who gives generously to all without finding fault, and that you give wisdom to those who ask for it in humility and faith and in sincerity. Oh, Lord, for these graces we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.